This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you and to have all the students here for what I think will be a very interesting uh, uh, set of talks, comments, and so on for you today. And the topic today has to do with bioscience. And uh, at the Lawrence Livermore Laboratory, they've been doing bioscience since the 1950s. But it was about in the 1990s when uh, Livermore Laboratory, Los Alamos Laboratory, and University of Berkeley set up the Human Genome Project where they first started sequencing the human genome. And since that time, this whole area of science around uh, uh, you know, biology and biotech has just absolutely totally changed the way we think of things. I think about when I used to go to the doctor, they would look at you, they would swab your throat, they would put it in a Petri dish and rub it around and they'd culture it. You'd come back two weeks later and they'd say, what you had was the following. You had a strep throat. Great. It would have been nice for them to tell me that that day so they could have given me some medicine. So things have changed and you're going to hear today how fast they can do things, what the details of the science are, and I think you'll be re really enjoy the presentation. Our uh, presenters today, one is Reg Beer, who is from the Lawrence Livermore Laboratory, and he's the leader of the Medical Diagnostic Institute, who is looking at these high-tech ways to actually do, do medicine better and to be able to uh, uh, analyze disease and tell you how to fix it. And with him, we have Erin McKay, who is a biology teacher from Tracy School District. And she's had a very broad career that involves being in the private industry. Uh, she does a, summers a lot of times uh, at Lawrence Livermore Laboratory. And she works with her students in her biology classes and encourages them actually to do research. And so with two really great instructors like this, I think you're going to have a wonderful day. And so with that, we'll introduce uh, Reg Beer, who will take the stand and, uh, and start uh, in giving you lectures that you will really remember. So we're going to start this talk out with a question. And, uh, and we do have rewards, I think, at least a few. So if a child can answer this, um, I think we have a slinky to give you. What is a pathogen? What is a pathogen? Anybody tell me what a pathogen is? Okay, the first hand I saw is right there. That's right. Okay, that, that gentleman gets a slinky. Um, Pathogens are viruses or uh, bacteria, sometimes funguses, that make us sick. That's a simple way to think of them. And we're going to talk to you today about the science and the technology, uh, the tools we use to detect pathogens, and how we can apply this to medical diagnostics to, um, to help ourselves and people we care about uh, when we get sick. So... Uh, a little bit of uh, this discussion before we even get started, because we're talking to people who are, you know, sort of going through science classes in junior high and, and high school, and, and nobody's going to tell you that, you know, some of the classes aren't going to be hard, right? You're going to have some work ahead of you to do this. And as you go through it, you'll think, is this going to be worth it? Is this going to be fun? Can a career in science be fun? And I would answer yes. Yes, it can be fun. But I will tell you, you have no idea where it will take you. Um, 
I never thought a few years ago that I would be uh, flying in a helicopter above the desert testing electromagnetics. Uh, but happened, and it was because of science that um, in pursuing that path that I got to do something like that. My career started in the, at the Space Center, Johnson Space Center, where I was doing structural dynamics. And it's an engineering field, um, so aerospace engineer. And I found that I was really interested in the biomedical stuff. So, um, so because of the background I had, I was able, because it was a technical background, I was able to move into that area that I really liked. And, uh, and I got involved in biomedical flight testing. So what you see on the upper left is an airplane in flight. It's a KC-135. It's a tanker that they removed the fuel from, fuel tanks from, and uh, a refueling tanker, not the fuel we needed to fly. And, uh, and they outfit the inside of the tanker with this padding because this plane flies and falls and goes up and goes down, zero G down, two Gs up. And we used it to test biomedical hardware, hardware that was going to help astronauts on extended missions in space, whether it be on the space shuttle, it's called the Extended Duration Orbiter, or the space station. And um, so one of the pictures you're seeing, I'm in the upper left floating and holding onto a strap, and we have a test subject, uh, it was a colleague of mine, and we were testing a blood pressure reader to make sure that in zero gravity we'd be able to read uh, scientists, uh, excuse me, astronauts' blood pressures appropriately. But um, very interesting area. And then when I came to Lawrence Livermore uh, National Lab, I got very interested in countering biological and public health threats. Well, that's one of the missions at Livermore. And it's something that uh, uh, we as a lab have a big history in. We were uh, very instrumental in the Human Genome Project, or some of our scientists were, and, uh, uh, which sequ sequenced the first human genome. And uh, we have always, uh, since then, we've always seen it as our mission to try to help this country not only in, in public health, but protecting people, protecting livestock, food safety. Uh, we develop tools and techniques uh, and technologies really to do that. One of the questions uh, we're going to answer today, you guys are going to learn if, uh, if you haven't yet, is what is the structure and function of DNA? Uh, you can see DNA, by the way, uh, in the lower right, double helix, and we're going to go into more detail on that. Another one is what is the polymerase chain reaction? This is not a natural reaction. This is something uh, Kerry Mollis got the Nobel Prize for, and it's a very useful tool. Um, and we're going to explain that. We use that reaction to copy DNA, but what is it? And finally, uh, why use molecular diagnostics in medicine? So molecular diagnostics is when we use DNA or proteins from what's actually making us sick uh, or our body's response to that. We use those to identify precisely what it is. Uh, when you go to the doctor today, you typically, they'll take your temperature, they will interview you, they'll take your blood pressure, they'll feel around your lymph nodes. They are very good at what they do. They have you know, studied tremendously to interpret symptoms and, and infer causes of those symptoms and what could be making you sick. Um, unfortunately, tools now that we, we're working on, um, the tools that they have sometimes take a long time when they want a diagnostic answer. So we're working to make those tools happen very quickly. When you look at our Stay Puff Marshmallow guy up here on the lower left, he's, he's every one of us, right? 
We have eukaryotic cells. In those cells, we have a nucleus. In that nucleus, we have our chromosomes. And those chromosomes, if you unwind them into chromatin and into DNA, they carry the genetic message. They carry the story of us, how we're made, um, how and when we should start growing, embryology. You know, why do, why do uh, in the womb, why do uh, growing fetuses develop different, uh, you know, different structures at different times? This stuff is all coded. How, how we fight off diseases, how we assemble this immune system to fight off d- diseases, all this information is in DNA. Um, and so DNA is, is we're going to get into more on DNA, but uh, when we talk about the function of DNA, it helps to have a real understanding of what it is. And uh, we have an interpretive dance troupe here from Tracy High, if they'll come out now. Miss Erin McKay. Okay, so um, we're going to be showing how DNA, um, the basic structure, what it's built of, its building blocks. For those of you who've learned the terms, we're going to be exploring the polymer by using monomers. And we will be using students to represent the individual building blocks or monomers that make up DNA. So DNA is a double helix. It's composed of two strands, as we saw in the previous picture. Now, in the previous picture, it twisted around. We're not going to try and turn our students into gymnasts. Mm -hmm. Um, Instead, they will just make a more basic ladder style of DNA. Um, And we will have our first nucleotide come out. Nucleotides are the building blocks of DNA. And that will be Katrina. She's going to be our first cytosine nucleotide. Now, you will notice that Katrina has her arms out, indicating that DNA has a specific basic shape uh, that is illustrated by this L. Um, If you've gone into more detail with the structure of DNA, you could know about the phosphate group, the deoxyribose sugar, and the nitrogenous space that make up the DNA nucleotide. Besides cytosine, we also have guanine, adenine, thymine. And so let's bring out our next one, which is going to be Kristen, who's going to be an adenine nucleotide. We'll help continue building this first strand of DNA. So A bonds on to C, and we now have two nucleotides. Next, we're going to bring out Katie, and she is another cytosine nucleotide, and she will bond on. So now we have CAC in our first strand of DNA. And finally, for our very short strand of DNA, we will bring out Kennedy. She is a thymine nucleotide. So we have CACT. Do we have all four of the basic nucleotides out here yet? No. What are we missing? What are we missing? Guanine. Guanine, okay. So we save guanine for the second strand. So next, we will see that we have our single strand of DNA, which is not typically how DNA exists inside your cells. But we can use this to illustrate the direction that DNA goes. So Katrina, can you please point in the direction that your DNA strand is going? There we go. So you'll notice when we build the second strand, it will be going in the opposite direction. This has a technical term in biology. We call it anti-parallel. So I'm sure in geometry or basic math, you've learned parallel, two lines who will not intersect. Anti-parallel, two lines, but going in opposite directions. So next, we will bring out Arashpreet as our adenine. A pairs with T. And then we will bring out Chase. Chase is going to be a guanine. Our first guanine and our second strand. Again, you'll notice Arashpreet and Chase have the same basic shape as our first strands. They're just binding in a different pattern. Next, we have Sandra as another thymine. 
And finally, Melissa as another guanine. So on a basic level, we have now built a DNA double helix. We see that A pairs with T, uh, represented by our yellow and green shirt students. And, or sorry, that would be our red and our uh, blue shirt students. Help if I could see the letters. And that uh, C pairs with G, which would be our yellow and our green, which is also Tracy High's colors. So can our first, for, uh, our second nucleotide strand kneel down to give the students a better view of the base pairing through our color coding? Okay, and then finally let's illustrate again that the DNA is going in two opposite directions. First strand, which direction are you pointing? Anarashpreet, second strand, which direction are you pointing? Okay, so we have a double-stranded DNA molecule using base pairing rules A with T, C with G. Second strand, please stand up. And now let's see if they can, as a whole molecule, make their way off the stage without breaking. <laughs> I know hydrogen bonds are weak, but you can do it. <laughs> Aren't they good? <clears throat> so how does nature copy DNA? Uh, nature's, as you can imagine, probably better at this than we are because uh, we as biotechnologists have only been doing this relatively recently. Uh, nature copies DNA through processes and basically enzymes and proteins and tools that exist in our cells that have evolved since, you know, since living beings and, and organisms have been on this planet. Um, so we, we're going to get help from nature when we try to do it, but um, I think it's, it's good to show you how it actually happens already in your cells. So this is DNA replication as it, as it happens in your cells. Using computer animation based on molecular research, we are now able to see how DNA is actually copied in living cells. You are looking at an assembly line of amazing miniature biochemical machines that are pulling apart the DNA double helix and cranking out a copy of each strand. The DNA to be copied enters the production line from bottom left. The whirling blue molecular machine is called helicase. It spins the DNA as fast as a jet engine as it unwinds the double helix into two strands. One strand is copied continuously and can be seen spooling off to the right. Things are not so simple for the other strand because it must be copied backwards. It is drawn out repeatedly in loops and copied one section at a time. The end result is two new DNA molecules. So pretty cool stuff, and uh, I'm glad I did not have to invent it because I couldn't have. Um, how do we copy DNA? Uh, we use something called the polymerase chain reaction, and we're also going to show you a video on that because the videos really help. But we'll talk a little bit about who the players are in DNA uh, in PCR. So you have parent DNA on the left. That's this double-stranded helix that uh, is what you saw when the Tracy team was out here. And we use thermal energy to actually control this process. It was one of the really slick uh, things in Carey's invention was that uh, he realized by modulating temperature we could actually control step by step in this process of copying DNA. Um, 
So we use temperature, we get up to almost boiling point, and what that does is that breaks the hydrogen bonds. When you had the, uh, the two rows of students here, as the bases were connected to each other and the single strands, those are covalent bonds, those are very strong. The hydrogen bonds that came out between the strands are very weak. And so by taking something up to 95C, it causes those bonds to break and the two strands disassociate or they separate from each other. Uh, what then happens is primers, which you'll see, we'll talk more on, but primers are uh, what we put into the PCR reaction to control where we're going to make our copies. And so we do this, we select sites uh, that we want to put these primers on. They're sort of like the cones, if you play football, the cones marking the end zones, right? We say in between this cone and this cone is what we care about. We want to make our copy here. And the primers go and they find those sites just through chemistry. They want to bind there. Um, so the primers attach at those specific sites. And then the green, what you see is a stylized is a green U, is actually a polymerase. And that polymerase attaches at the end of a primer and it works its way down each single strand and it makes copies. It pulls in its complementary bases, uh, the complementary bases of each base it hits and assembles a full up coffee, copy. And we control it through temperature. And so that gives us as humans, the control to make this, this process, this copy. And so it's a very efficient method of copying DNA. Um, so with that, I think this video will, uh, will have some, uh, some meaning to you, and you can watch this one too. Polymerase chain reaction, or PCR, uses repeated cycles of heating and cooling to make many copies of a specific region of DNA. First, the temperature is raised to near boiling, causing the double-stranded DNA to separate or denature into single strands. When the temperature is decreased, short DNA sequences known as primers bind or anneal to complementary matches on the target DNA sequence. The primers bracket the target sequence to be copied. At a slightly higher temperature, the enzyme TAC polymerase, shown here in blue, binds to the primed sequences and adds nucleotides to extend the second strand. This completes the first cycle. In subsequent cycles, the process of denaturing, annealing, and extending are repeated to make additional DNA copies. After three cycles, the target sequence defined by the primers begins to accumulate. After 30 cycles, as many as a billion copies of the target sequence are produced from a single starting molecule. So we're going to talk more in a bit about why that's so powerful. But, um, but one of the questions is, what do primers look like? Primers aren't anything other than DNA themselves. And we actually make the primers, companies now make the primers. Uh, you send them the sequence, but um, they make the primers that you've selected to say, okay, this is the gene of interest or what I want to target. And, um, and we know that because of things like the sequencing projects, like the Human Genome Project. Um, those, after the human genome was sequenced, everything else began to be sequenced. People started going after you know, all bacteria, all, all uh, viruses, all fungi, and, um, and so you know, these studies continue. But because of that knowledge now that exists in 
federal databases, databases that we all have access to. Um, you can design primers to amplify and PCR and detect anything that's been sequenced. Uh, what do the primers look like? They're just short uh, strands of single-stranded DNA themselves. They're usually around 20 bases uh, is typical, and they're very specific. They're designed to only uh, bind at areas that we care to amplify. So the other real power about PCR is, and it's, it's really, you know, home run hit, is that it does exponential amplification. And to illustrate this, I have to ask, does anybody not like cupcakes? You're the first person I've seen answer that question. Congratulations. There's a man who doesn't like cupcakes here. Okay. For all the rest of you who do like cupcakes, we are going to show you how DNA, uh, well, we're going to show you the power of PCR through cupcakes. So let's say I start with one copy of DNA. This is my copy here of this cupcake. And I do one cycle of PCR. At the end of that cycle, I have two cupcakes. And I say, I want to do another cycle. I want more than two cupcakes. Do another cycle. Now I'm up to four cupcakes. Okay, two cycles done. Third cycle. We have eight. And fourth cycle. 16. Now, if they had let me continue this out to 30 cycles, we'd have a billion cupcakes to eat. But unfortunately, they made me stop here. So, anyway, thank you to our cupcake team. So, this is the real power of, of the polymerase chain reaction. You double your number, number every cycle. And, you know, when you're down around cycle two and three, it doesn't really, you know, as human beings, we don't really think about what a billion means. But, you know, it just sort of seems like, okay, you're getting more each time. But the point is you're doubling it each time. So it only takes 30 cycles, just 24 more cycles to get to a billion copies. It's an amazingly powerful tool. And when we started PCR, an area of our research has been to make it go faster. When we started, it took about an hour. We've now done it in about three minutes making all those copies, going through all those cycles. So, you know, it's an area of, of research, an area that I'm personally very interested in. Uh, my interest in, in getting PCR to go faster was actually uh, when I took my own children to the pediatrician and they were sick with a disease that uh, was not, you know, was it strep? We don't know. Uh, we go in there and, um, and doing symptom-based detection, the doctors did a great job, you know, uh, but they have to take a sample and send it away to a reference lab and, you know, call back in a day, I think it was, 24 hours, maybe 48. And, um, and I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, we have these tools that can go this fast and they can be specific for the sicknesses that that doctor may care to test for. So an area of interest we have is in making infectious disease diagnoses very fast and making the tools for that very fast so that it's not just a national lab, it's in your doctor's office. And so, um, so anyway, so that's part of, uh, part of the topic of this talk. And as you've seen from the contagion clip and from some of the research that we're going to show you, uh, you know, we really, really key on respiratory viruses quite a bit at Livermore. They're, uh, because of air travel and because of uh, the way these viruses have evolved to be very contagious, you know, they're a constant threat that, um, that we have. So most of you are too young to remember the SARS outbreak. 
but the SARS outbreak killed about a thousand people in Asia. And we don't know precisely because uh, not all the governments reported all the deaths that they had uh, in that area. And a lot of the deaths were in rural areas anyway, where it was hard to get census data. But, um, but here you see on the right, you see a SARS variant. And uh, you know, just using this as a prototypical you know, virus that's uh, uh, transmitted between people and is highly infectious, you have a variant particle, it's a shell, and what really matters in the shell is this genomic RNA. Well, RNA is a single-stranded, slightly different chemical version of DNA, but it still contains information. And so what these proteins want to do, do on this virus particle is when they get in your body, they want to go to cells, and they want to get inside those cells. And when they get inside those cells, can any t anybody tell me what they do when they get inside the cells? Can I see a, a hand here? Okay, you, sir. That's right. They want to he said they want to transmit the RNA into your cell. Specifically, what they want to do is they want to get that genetic message in there, and they want to use the cell's own tools to make copies. And what they do is they, they express the genetic message, and they get proteins made by your own. They trick your cells into making the proteins to assemble viruses. And so it's like if I had a car factory, and I came into it, and I said, I don't want cars, I want jet skis. And I made everybody in the factory start building jet skis or snowmobiles. And I worked the workers so hard they died and the factory exploded. That's what the viruses are trying to do to our cells. And once they do that successfully, then um, if they're highly contagious, then obviously the host can be a person. The host is uh, in jeopardy. And, um, and you can have some pretty, pretty bad outcomes. This is an image of smallpox. As you may be aware, smallpox uh, was a very, very bad uh, plague that really affected Native American populations uh, in northern and central America. And uh, was was eradicated, but we still have to be aware of it because there's the possibility that bad actors or, or uh, maybe terrorists may try to reintroduce it. Um, but smallpox was not too far away in our distant past and, and could come back. Um, you've seen SARS, other viruses that we care about. There's Lassa virus, there's SARS, there's the flu virus. All its different variants sometimes are very dangerous. And so, you know, we ask how can science help? We have tools here like PCR and sequencing, you know, we can talk to these. But... Um, but in the end, these are man-made tools. And so we have to, you know, I've been asked, so what does a PCR result look like? This is, it's stylized so it shows up better on the plot, but this is real data. This is from a bovine herpes assay. So if you know any cows with cold sores, you can tell them we've got something for them. But, um, but what's happening is on these cycles, until about cycle 25, that exponential amplification, like those cupcakes, that exponential amplification is occurring. And finally, what happens when you see the curve pop is the signal has gotten so strong that a man-made detector can see it. A very, you know, relatively inexpensive man-made detector can see it. That's what's in a PCR instrument. And, uh, and the reason it can see it is we make, uh, we, we attach what are called fluorophores, but they're these fluorescent molecules that attach to the copies of DNA that you make. And they fluoresce. So when they're excited or hit with energy of a specific color or wavelength, 
They excite an, an electron in an orbital. That orbital moves and, uh, and releases a wavelength of energy or a wavelength of light, a photon, and, uh, and that is detected by the receiver. And sometimes they're what's called photodiodes or they could be CCD chips. But the point is, is that we use PCR to make enough copies of DNA so that our instruments can detect the DNA. How many of you have, have ever, with their naked eyes, seen their own DNA? See, no, nobody does, right? I mean, if you, if you see cells during cell division, when the chromosomes are really getting puffy and stuff, you can see them under microscopes. But the point is, is as DNA typically exists and as it's being used in your cells, it's way too small to see. So these are all tools that we, we use to be able to do these detections. What the lab, we're trying to innovate solutions in this area. As I mentioned, we want to go from a sample to a basically uh, detection as fast or a diagnosis as fast as we can. So the idea is you take a blood sample or maybe a, a mucus sample, um, maybe it's a cheek swab, but you take a sample and you put it on an instrument and you run it and you try to get a very fast answer. And you do that so that um, your patient can be treated and you can quickly make a decision on whether this person is dangerous or needs to be quarantined. Now, if this is the common cold, you wouldn't do this, but let's say somebody is on a plane from some, somewhere else and they land at SFO and by the time they land, they've died. Think of the contagion clip. Um, it may be very important to be able to uh, apply some fast diagnostic tools to people that came into contact with that individual. So uh, molecular diagnostics supports things beyond detection. And one of the things I'll, I'll talk to you briefly about is vaccine research. Uh, the lab also does, has a vaccine therapeutics program to try to accelerate the time or, or yeah, reduce the time it takes to develop a novel vaccine when a new virus emerges. Uh, interesting topic. Not really going to cover it here, but I can tell you that... Um, uh, that I was fortunate enough to go, and this is why science and technology as a career is interesting. You never know where you're going to end up with it. But um, I was fortunate enough to go on a trip uh, to Nairobi in Kenya. And uh, we were going there because the, our sponsors and the lab are interested in developing tools that can help the populations in that area to um, be diagnosed faster and treated faster. Now, the reason that that area is a very interesting one... Oh, and by the way, the mouth uh, protection or the mouth cover that I'm wearing is not to protect me from the monkeys there. It's actually to protect... It goes, goes both ways, but they wouldn't want the monkeys that are being tested for vaccines to get a secondary infection from something I may be, be carrying. So, uh, you know, so transmission can go both ways. But the reason we're interested in that area is because uh, you can see from a map of Africa on the satellite image of Africa on the upper left in that large blue lake, you see Lake Victoria. The other, um, the other interesting feature on this map is that white line, the equator, and then finally the Great Rift Valley. Well, this valley has been a birthplace of many of the most deadly uh, hemorrhagic fevers and viruses that, that humankind has ever seen. And part of it is because of where it is. It's in the equator, so it's hot, it's humid. There's a large population there, and, um, 
And it's a place where we see things going into animal reservoirs. Animal reservoirs may be animals that can carry the disease, but it doesn't, doesn't harm them. And then jump to, jump to humans. So anyway, it's an area that is scientifically of tremendous interest to us. And so when we try to uh, help by putting diagnostics over there, we're helping each other. Because we're, we're helping uh, the population there, and they're helping us understand how viruses are, are mutating. And, um, and so it goes both ways. But when you go over there, uh, one, of the, one of the things that comes up is, what do you expect to see? In all the travels I've done internationally, I have to say, Coca-Cola is everywhere. And so you will see Coke... Uh, better advertised, you know, offshore than any place you've ever been. And um, I, maybe it's the sugar, sweetness. Don't expect it with ice. You'll never get an ice cube. But, uh, but it's, it's still everywhere. And, um, and when uh, the point here is that multinational corporations are already in regions of the world. And now the mobile phone companies are in those same regions. I actually got better cell coverage in Kenya than I do here in the Tri-Valley. So... Um, so, yeah, take that for what it is. I won't tell you who my provider is. But, um, uh, but keep in mind that our standards of living are inconceivable to, um, to some areas of the world. This is a very, very, uh, a rather large, actually, uh, home for some agrarian uh, farmer-type uh, you know, individuals. You can see an open fire pit on the far right. There are no restroom facilities. There's no running water. That's why there's big pushes to get, you know, clean water programs uh, onto the continent. And, um, and, and people spend a lot of time outside. There's mosquitoes, so mosquitoes become effective vectors to transmit diseases uh, from, from one bite to another and, and carrying parasites. So it's an, it's an area that, um, that is sort of set up to be a place that you really want to understand the biology that's going on there. So the point is, is that uh, healthcare knows no boundary. Everybody has an interest in it. Everybody's child has a right to it. And, um, and we're helping each other, and that's an interest of the lab. and something I'm very glad that, it, uh, that I got to be involved in. I got there because when I was your age, I was engaged in science, mathematics. I thought it, you know, it was, I knew it was interesting. I knew it was hard. Times it's tough, right, going through some of the classes. But at the end of the day, you're building a foundation that's going to open doors to you. You, have, you can't even predict where you're, you know, 10 years from now, much less 20 or 30. No matter what you pursue, keep learning. Understand the value of scientific endeavor and, um, and why it's important for this, you know, people in the country to, uh, to pursue it. And I uh, have to add that our latest discovery... Uh, you'll see this in the news sh- soon, I'm sure. We have finally discovered how the pig flu jumped from pigs to humans. I let that one sink in. <laughs> Every parent who sees this cringes. You think of all the petting zoos you took your kids to. I know, I know, it's a tough picture. Um, this picture's on the web. I'll 
I'll be honest with you, but I love this picture. Uh, I'm sure that child was fine, by the way. So, uh, so for those of you who are taking notes, we're going to cover now structure in, uh, of DNA. You already know from the, uh, the excellent job that the Tracy High students did and Aaron McKay did that DNA is a double helix with four bases that pair complementary to each other. But we ask, what is the function of DNA? Okay, Alluded to it briefly, DNA is the story of us. It is coding for every protein in your body, everything you can squeeze, feel, everything uh, that you are is coded in your DNA. How you fight diseases, how your immune system you know, is, is designed in your, you know, in your body, it's all in your DNA. How you develop an embryology. DNA is the greatest information story device that this world has ever seen. Imagine if your iPod, if you got an iPod, say your parents got you one at Christmas time, and you get an iPod, and, um, and you say, Dad, Mom, I don't want this iPod. I want the one that's going to last me 80 years, and it's going to store all the information that I need to live, and when I die, I'm going to pass this iPod on to my children, and all that information is going to go with them. We couldn't build that for you. This is a hard drive that never quits. It never dies. And not only do you carry the message on how to build you, but this message gets improved through natural selection, and your children you know, have variability that may help them respond to environmental threats differently than what you did. So this information storage device is, is absolutely amazing. It's uh, uh, sort of mind-boggling that this... this um, this invention by nature, if you will, uh, has been used to, when fossils of animals that have been dead and extinct for thousands of years, uh, they're able to recover DNA, sequence it, and actually understand the genomes of things that have been dead uh, for a long, long time. You know, that's the power of this molecule. You all have it. You make copies of it every time your cells divide. Pat yourself on the back as you're doing that. Um, that's the function of DNA. What is the polymerase chain reaction? It's a chemical reaction using enzymes to make copies of strands of DNA to amplify the numbers of those strands exponentially. If we amplified linearly, not exponentially, we wouldn't get to a billion copies in 30 cycles. So that's the power and the, uh, and the function of uh, or the use for the polymerase chain reaction. Why would we use molecular diagnostics in medicine? They are very accurate because we know sequences of what we're trying to detect. We design our primers in the case of PCR diagnostics to be very specific about what we detect. But molecular diagnostics are more than PCR. Sequencing can be used as a diagnostic. Microarrays where we hybridize or bind sequences from our DNA that's in maybe a sample of your blood, of your serum. Uh, and there's also protein-based molecular diagnostics, where you actually use proteins that your body produces to fight off an illness can be detected on, on what we call little chips. So it's a very air, air, pardon me, an area that is very interesting to those of us in this field or this space to see develop, and it's one that I hope you guys, those of you who are interested in biology and biotechnology, uh, an area I hope you guys pursue. The whole goal is to detect the cause of the disease, not the symptoms. To do it accurately and quickly to be able to save lives. 
want to thank you guys for coming. If there's more questions, you can come down here. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.